Welcome to The Lorax, the podcast where we take your favourite science fiction, fantasy and fictional worlds and delve a little bit too deeply into them through philosophical, cultural and political lenses. I'm Khalil. And I'm Alex. And this episode is going to be another one of our little fireside chat episodes, where instead of breaking down a whole world and piece of fiction bit by bit, it's going to be a bit more of a, a light chat about something that we've either enjoyed or not or mixed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As will become apparent. Yes, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's more of a... Uh, th- think about this as, as the kind of chat we we have pre-doing an actual analysis episode where we just go over our thoughts on things, but you get to hear the, the sound of the sausage being made. Um, kind of a session zero, if you ooh, will. Ooh, I like that. That's a nice segue. So, if uh, if you hadn't gathered from that subtle little reference... Or the title. <laughs> or the title of the episode on wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, we're going to be talking about the D&D movie. D&D and not movie. the really terrible one from a few years ago with Jeremy Irons. The really terrible one from 2023. <laughs> He's coming in hard straight off, straight <laughs> off the bat. This is going to be a so fun... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out my stall right now. I didn't like this film. Yeah, but yeah. this is going to be fun. <laughs> we'll get to it. Yeah, it's going to be fun because I, I, didn't, I, didn't I didn't not like it. I thought it was a fine like popcorn-y flick thing. Um, I thought it, I was actually pleasantly surprised myself, but uh, yeah, I think it there it divided opinion among people who, I mean, full disclosure, if you don't know by now, both uh, Helene and I both uh, play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, we've been, I've been doing so for like six or seven years now. You do a lot of it. You stream a lot of it. You play a lot of it very, very regularly. Yeah. Um, so you know, we're coming at it from the perspective of. A certain chunk of the audience, mm. um, but also a specific subsection of the D and D loving audience. The kind so of the D and D audience who start podcasts, <laughs> but also the D and D audience who you know they like to me- play around with stories. Yeah, but first of all, um, we should probably give people a little bit of an introduction into what it is we're talking about. Yeah, um, because if you've been living under a rock or have cooler things to do, like sports. Um, Dungeons & Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game. It's collaborative storytelling. So a group of you get together and essentially improv your way through a collectively made story. There's one player who is the, the game master or the dungeon master who creates the world that you're playing in and the characters in it. And everyone else plays one of the, the the primary agonists of the story. And as a storytelling medium and as a game, it is wonderful. It has almost infinite storytelling potential because you decide what happens and you decide what the world is. Um, it's also a very lucrative piece of intellectual property at the moment. Yeah, It's owned by Wizards of the Coast who uh, own Magic the Gathering and Pokemon cards who are in turn owned by Hasbro, the American toy giant. Yeah. And no, that's not a <laughs> huge Barbie stomping her way through the, uh, through the, through the world. Well, that's Mattel, isn't it? Yeah. Um, no, Hasbro um, has brought the, the hand of the market into this uh, nerdy <laughs> little storytelling game. Well, yeah, it's been trying to do so since 2013 anyway. I mean, the, uh, this, this project was in development hell for a very long time. Um, 
In fact, they, they sued some people into the ground. It was originally, I think Warner Brothers said they were making a D&D movie in 2013, and then Hasbro sued them saying they were making a D&D movie. And then nothing happened until like 2019 when two guys who, uh, two like um, writers uh, were approached by Paramount and who were then like, hey, do you want to like revive this dead movie? <laughs> Do you want to write a script for this dead movie? Now D&D's like taking off. Do you want to revivify on? this dead movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's uh, it's a sort of part heist movie, part dungeon crawl kind of thing. Um, it's sort of, yeah, I think they sort of took a very uh, Marvel-esque um, Ocean's Eleven kind of look at it uh, to try and uh, create something that people who aren't familiar with the setting um, might enjoy. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but before we get to the plot summary, the way that Alex has described it there sounds very fun. <laughs> a dungeon crawl slash heist movie in a fantasy world that you know you can make accessible to people who may not be fully steeped in the lore of that world. Mm. On paper, that sounds great. We'll circle back. Yeah. We have uh, the main character, uh, a bard named Edgin Darvis. I don't think if you ever actually find out his surname. I've got this off Wikipedia. Um, he's a guy... Also, it's spelled like, spelled like edging. <laughs> <laughs> Getting in there early. Just, yeah, the opposite point of edging. Um, yeah, he's joined by his companion, uh, Holger Kilgore, who's a barbarian. They are in a, uh, in a prison at the start of the movie. Uh, and they, uh, f- for having trying to because they tried to steal something called a Tablet of Reawakening to revive Edgin's dead wife. Um, they escape from imprisonment and then discover that a former associate of theirs has become the leader of a big city in the D&D setting called Neverwinter, caring for Edgin's daughter, Kira. They then find out that uh, the, the heel turn of this former associate played by Hugh Grant, um, he was in fact behind the reason they were caught. Uh, and they decide to get revenge on him by um, robbing his vault during the High Sun Games, a big festival that happens in Neverwinter, uh, to prove their innocence, uh, resurrect uh, Edgin's wife, and get uh, his daughter back on side. Along the way, they're joined by uh, Simon, a sorcerer who used to work in their uh, used to work in their gang, but since their incarceration, have become a minor conjurer of cheap tricks, to quote Gandalf. And uh, Doric, a druid tiefling, um, fighting who's, who joins the party because Forge, the guy play, played by um, Hugh Grant, is doing a lot of logging and deforestation. That's her main motivation. They search for a, an artifact called the Helm of Disjunction to disable the magical defences in uh, Forge's castle and then uh, infiltrate the vault during the games, escape, steal the treasure, and then uh, thwart a, a big overarching plan created by these uh, big bads um, called the Thayan Red Wizards. Um, they stop a big sky beam, uh, happy ever after, uh, clinking of glasses, teasing of sequels, um, and that's that's pretty much the, the... There's other stuff that happens, but I'm not spoiling it. Also, the, it's not necessarily the... The plot is not necessarily the, uh, the selling point of the no. film. No, no. Like you said, um, it is a sword and sorcery fun family fantasy film yeah yeah um and essentially they've basically tried to cram an entire dungeons and dragons campaign um which if you play dungeons and dragons can last from a few months to over a year Mm. um 
they tried to cram that into two hours. Which means that, actually, the plot kind of works a little bit how Alex just explained it. You get scenes where stuff happens, and then at the beginning of the next scene, you'll get a little bit of kind of exposition conversation, um, where they'll explain to you what happened in between. Um, which, for those familiar with storytelling, you might have heard of the, the mantra, show, don't tell. This is kind of show, then tell, then show, then tell, mm. then show, then tell, then show, then tell. But, you know, it, you could either try to cram an entire D&D campaign into one film and do this, or you could string it out over a trilogy, as is tradition, and make a bunch more money. Yeah, I, I think so that was something that really stuck out to me actually watching the film the, the first time round was uh, I think especially the first half of the film does exactly that. It, it jump cuts to a lot of different things happening, lots of time passing between set pieces with that kind of like what's it's kind of like that Marvel thing of like someone doing like an office style look to the camera but not really and sort of saying well that happened um, mm-hmm. um, I do think the film finds its feet in the second half I enjoyed the second half more. Yeah, that's because it's it's more of a continuous bit of narrative. Yeah, that's true. I think it's it's like you said, it spends a lot of of its first forty five minutes or so desperately trying to introduce a well established setting uh, to mm-hmm. people. It glosses over things like the fact that Edgin is a member of the Harpers and, and what the Red Wizards of Thay are, where what Neverwinter is. A lot of it is just sort of like the they're sort of said as like byproducts of the story which i think is probably a decent idea because you don't want to be like so the harpers are this and the red wizards of Thay are that and all this kind of stuff yeah looking straight down the barrel of the camera yeah as we talked about um, in our well, dread episode while we're on the subject of um of a, of a of an established setting i mean i i want to start off with some of the things i liked about the, the film ah the old compliment because I, I don't sandwich. want to come come across as debbie downer so for someone who is very familiar with um, with Dungeons and Dragons and how the 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 canonical world of Faerun and, and the Forgotten Realms work, and how the the, the magic of the realms and the creatures um, kind of exist in, in in that world, I really enjoyed seeing. You know, there were some kind of fan favorite creatures like owl bears and mm-hmm. displacer beasts and. You could see, you know, some of the spells that you're familiar with being cast. So, Earthen Grasp, Bigby's Hand, Time Stop, Reverse Gravity, Speak With Dead was a pretty good one. Yeah. Animate Objects. Um, the way that they did Speak With Dead was fun. Because it very much felt like ha- what sometimes happens at the table when you cast Speak With Dead. Mm-hmm. You cast it, and you ask a question, and you get an unsatisfactory answer, and you have a couple more questions to ask this dead body, but you end up kind of squandering them a little bit because you get you panic and yeah. you start asking rhetorical questions, which was a fun little moment. Mm-hmm. It was well done. Yeah, I, I think um, there's a lot of the critics, because this, this is a well-received film. I actually hadn't looked. Um, uh, I do I do this horrible thing where every time I go out, I see a film, I have my own opinions, and then I go and look at the Rotten Tomato score to see if my opinion is is the same as critics. <laughs> it's and valid. Then they, and then if it's not, if it's not, and I like the film more than critics, I'm like, oh, is there something wrong with me? But um, I went, <laughs> I went to have a look. I hadn't looked for for Honor Among Thieves, which is the the subtitle for this film, because introducing the trilogy, probably, and it uh, it has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and a lot of critics, I think. They specifically in their reviews, and I, I, you, you would need to look at every single critic to see if they actually do play a lot of D and D. 
the big but the big plus for them was they were like it's just like playing a game around the table with your friends it's it's exactly the same um which i would argue against i think i would say it's the opposite of playing a game around the table with your friends i i think i think it's there i think it's i think it's like if you look at there's like that meme isn't there of like the iceberg where there's like the tip and then, like i would say you got the tip of the iceberg is what the film shows and people who have yeah, people who play maybe not as much D and D as you and me are like, oh yeah, that seems familiar. Like when I played at my mate's birthday, or we went, we had that that games evening, um, and that you know that sort of whimsical stuff. And then yeah, the 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 stuff underneath the stuff is the stuff that it didn't represent from the tabletop. Yeah, you know, especially we we were talking about a <clears throat> a setting with almost limitless storytelling potential and mm. agency being the kind of the core of it. Watching a film seems kind of seems like not watching not playing D&D but with your friends but watching other people play which yeah. can be fun there's lots of um you know there's lots of great streams out there check out science and sorcery <laughs> <laughs> yeah do do um but i'll put a uh, link in the description well yeah we should be um coming back from our hiatus in november 2023 there you go um but yeah, I wouldn't say... I mean, you, there were bits where you could see, for example, uh, you know, you could tell that a skill check was happening and you, know, you could tell, oh, someone's just rolled in that one or someone's just rolled in that 20. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I do get a bit of that vibe. I mean, another thing I, I liked on the subject of the, of the world was a lot of the physical effects. So there was mm, some... Yeah. yeah, there was some pretty good CGI's, fine. Um, but... I really liked that for a lot of the close-up shots where the characters were physically interacting with things, they used physical effects. Yeah. So slightly kind of rubbery tentacles and uh, the kind of the talking corpses and some of the creature characters yeah. um, were clearly physical effects. And that's something that you don't see much nowadays. Yeah, and yeah. I, I respect. Yeah, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see the 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 tabaxi in 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 brackets for those who don't know cat cat people um characters and the uh the aracocra in brackets eagle people um characters be you know pr- uh practical effects and, pro- and you know these the costumes and stuff and it was really good i mean it's like it's one of those things where in a in a in a uh uh, as movie-going zeitgeist, where everything is CGI, it kind of stands out, not in a bad way, but you're sort of like, oh, that's, oh, wow, that's practical effects. Like you like, instantly can see, um, it's kind of an yeah. interesting return to the the norm. And I actually, I have a, um, I have a theory about why that might be, but we'll come to that at the end when when I have my okay. capital T thoughts. All oh, right. Um, and another another thing that I, I mean, another two things I really liked. Uh, were Rene Jean Page and Michelle Rodriguez um, because hello both of you <laughs> <laughs> um, they're both great actors um, uh, and both people you love to see yeah um, bisexual and, dream right um, and also some of the some of the like little comedic bits in the film were great so mm-hmm. there's a bit where um, they create an illusion of Edgin and it's meant to be a distraction which is a classic bard D and D bit. Um, oh, why don't I do a distraction? I'll cast Major Image, um, and it starts to glitch. Yeah, um, and that genuinely was was pretty, was funny. Oh, yeah, that that did that, that was that was a laugh out loud moment for me as well. I thought that, that was, was really, really well good. done. 
It was very good. Um, yeah, and it, it, what about you? What are you some of faves? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it, I think that like it's just this. This is why I, I find it hard to critique this movie too much because there are so many little things in there that make me like smile as like somebody plays D and D. Uh, it's just like oh yeah you know oh, you know that oh, that's a nice little nod in the wink and a, a little chuckle here and there, um, but yeah I, 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 that that kind of stuff is, is like warm to the cockles of my heart you might say, um, but the thing is is that um, I was saying to this to you before we started recording and that is that that because I pretty much enjoyed this film I probably would say a seven and a half out of ten for me. Um, and I went to see it with some of the people we play D&D with, um, and they all enjoyed it um, and had a few notes, um, apart from some of like the rule-specific things, like, oh, you can't wild shape that many times as a druid, or um, <laughs> which, I mean, maybe I'm cutting you off before we get to the, the, the critiquing bit, but because I was like, when you went to see it, I, mess- I remember messaging you and be like, oh, you know, what did you think? And you were like, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a visceral reaction that it really took me back. So, so why, don't, why don't you just why don't you just like dig, why don't you just get into that and let me know? Okay, let's get into Khalil mode. Um, okay, so we've talked about the pacing. Yeah, um, we don't need to go over that again. Um, there are, I, I say, my main my main issues with it come under two main headings. Um, and there's there's actually one bit where they kind of overlap, which is fun. Um, one of them is that I feel like it it missed a lot of opportunities to be more interesting than it could be. Okay. Which I'm aware that I wasn't the target audience for this film. And we'll get into what we think the target audiences are. And the other one is race. Mm-hmm. This is the Lorax. There's going to be a problematizing bit. So, first of all, Thay. So Thay, the Red Wizards of Thay, um, are the big bads in this mm-hmm. film. They are the evil uh, power behind the initial antagonist that is then revealed later on. It's one thing to have an evil cabal of powerful wizards who are intent on you know spreading necromantic magic and dominating the world. Cool, fine, classic. But if we have a look at where Thay is and how it is, how it was introduced into Dungeons and Dragons, that's where I think it gets a bit, a bit problematic. Okay. So, Thay, uh, one of the main source books for Thay in D and D, comes from a third edition book called The Unapproachable East. Oh no, it's from that book. I had no idea. <laughs> the Unapproachable East which was a, a supplement book for third edition, talked about a whole range of places to the east of, um, of, of where most of the other stories are set. And you have uh, Rashomon, which is a nation of barbarians and witches. You have uh, Altumbel, which is a land of pirates. And you have Thesk, which is run by thieves. And then you have Thay, which is this evil mageocracy. Um, and all of these places, you know, among a few others that are kind of less, uh, you know, less kind of scarily coded. But all of these being bundled together as the unapproachable East. Um, really, I, I've talked about this 
I think in the past, um, in in another episode, but I really don't like this trope of having the East be this scary, bad, dark, mystical place. Mm-hmm. Um, it stinks of Orientalism, and it you know it feeds this narrative that in the real world the West is under threat from the East. Um, I don't like it. Also. With, uh, what's her name? The tiefling Doric. druid. Doric. Um, Doric, otherwise fine character. I mean, you could have a more interesting motivation for a druid than, they chop down trees! <laughs> but that's kind of beside the point. One of the great things about tieflings in Dungeons & Dragons is that tieflings, for those who might not know, are humanoid people who have some part of their ancestry linked to devils or demons. Mm-hmm. Fiends. That doesn't mean that they're evil, but it means that they have things like some of them have horns or tails or, um, you know, fiery powers, things like that. Yeah. One of the coolest things about them is that they're all sorts of mad colours. They're red, they're blue, they're purple, they're grey, they're like, green, en- like anything because of all the different fiendish heritages that they can have. And they made her a pretty white woman. <laughs> yeah. And, and that just seems lazy and boring. Like... They could have at least, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy her and made her a pretty, whatever exotic yeah. I, the thing is, palette I, color. I actually chose. missed. This is this is a fair. This is a good point. And I, I was thinking about this before we we recorded, and I knew it was something we were both going to bring up. But I missed the first time I watched it that she was a tiefling. Up until the point that she like later in the film uses her tail to grab something, and I was like, "Oh, she's a tiefling!" <laughs> like I had no mm-hmm. idea. Um, and she's got the tiniest little horns, and her her character motivation is supposed to be like, "Oh, I don't trust humans, so I, I fell in with these elves in the woods because they look after people properly, um, and I'm a tiefling." And it's like, "Well, I could get that if you were if you were purple skinned and you had giant horns and a, and a big tail." You know, the but you're like like Kinkun said, you're you're an attractive woman who can who has the smallest horns and big, like bushy ginger hair, bushy. I think it's bushy, and it's kind of like I think I feel like the writers went they went wood elf and then they then they're like no we need better motivation, <laughs> so we'll go tiefling. But they were like oh we've already done wood elf so we might as well keep most of the uh, the stuff there. Yeah, or or like you know we want her to have some kind of marginalization. Yeah. But not too much. Yeah. Also, if you are gonna pit, if you are gonna go with the marginalization angle, you really probably shouldn't cast a white person, right? <laughs> so that's where that's kind of where I think we start to transition between my two big bugbears with this thing. Yeah. There is the there is the uh, the dodgy cultural angles, and then now we're starting to get into the I think the the, the narrative laziness. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the biggest part of the narrative laziness and this is a personal bugbear of mine, bugbear, nah. um, is the paladin. Yeah, you, you love so, paladins, don't you? Paladins are my favorite class in the whole of Dungeons and & Dragons. Um, and for those that might not be aware, paladins are warriors that believe so hard in some cause or other that that belief itself gives them magic powers. So... Not only are they a, a fun mechanical class to play, <clears throat> because of you know this ability to do bit of magic, bit of healing, bit of fighting, but also you have such interesting inbuilt story hooks. Because in past editions of Dungeons and Dragons, they were generally 
holy warriors, you know, holier than thou, sanctimonious, uh, always had to be lawful good. But one of the best things about fifth edition is that their mo- their motivating oath can be anything. Mm. It can be vengeance, it can be domination, it can be compassion, it can be nature, it can be authority, it can be uh, forgiveness, anything. And so you've got these this potential for really interesting story hooks built in there. And what did they choose to do? They had a very handsome, like uptight, legalistic himbot. Yeah. Which is very much that old school, you know, intelligence is your dump stat, mm. um, holier than thou, lawful good, devotion paladin. Yeah. And it felt like it was such a missed opportunity. And between that and the, you know, some of the motivations for some of the characters and da da da, I feel like there was quite a, quite a lot of the characterization was kind of phoned in. Yeah. I mean, with the paladin character who, um, who's, ob- yeah, is an interesting introduction in the story. I didn't include him in the actual plot summary, but because um, I can't remember his actual name without looking it up on Wikipedia. Um, but yeah, he people like to joke that he is like the film's version of the DMPC, the Dungeon Master's player character, because he turns up halfway through the story, uh, solves. Uh, answers questions, solves riddles, takes the players to where they next need to go, and then when they've completed that bit of the quest, literally walks off into the sunset, uh, straight over a rock, um, which was improvised, (laughs) an improvised scene. Um, But yeah, and and people people enjoyed that. And I I think it probably, again, comes down to, I think this might be the the main thrust of, of the reason why you dislike the film and the film's purpose, right? Is that they went... um, and I don't want to cut you off before we get into the other stuff, but they went bog standard, right? They went like middle of the road, missionary position D&D, so the entry level stuff before you get people hooked on the good shit. <laughs> well, I, I, that actually segues directly into, yeah, in, into me kind of coming to terms with some of the reasons why I don't like this film. Yeah. Um, you know, the the race stuff is stuff that is often baked into a lot of these fantasy settings and people are too lazy mm-hmm. to take it out. But when it comes to the motivations and, and the kind of the lack of the missed the missed opportunities for interesting storytelling, mm-hmm. I do agree and I I you know, I'm aware that I wasn't the target audience for this film. Yeah. Um I would say from watching it that it was pitched at two main audiences. One was families with young kids who want to go see cool dragons and shit and have a nice family day out. Mm-hmm. Have a slush puppy, have some popcorn, an overpriced, warm, soggy hot dog, whatever. <laughs> and the other audience was boomer old school D&D heads who want to reminisce about the old days and maybe bond with their younger family members. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they had the basic bitch paladin. That's why they had Neverwinter. That's why they had, you know, so many kind of, uh, you know, uh, recognizable calling cards like, you know, owl bears, the underdark, stuff like that. Yeah. Because they they wanted it to be both a shop window for, you know, new, younger audiences that might want to get, you know, start buying D&D books. Mm -hmm. And also a kind of fan service member berries thing for the the old school heads. Yeah. And... 
definitely me um, and you know I don't want to put words into your mouth but I would say that we probably lie in terms of chronologically in the middle mm. but also out the ways that we enjoy D&D are as a way to creatively tell stories and to yeah to experiment with you know worlds and and directions and possibilities yeah, yeah. i mean i mean you you and me we're we're fully through the looking glass at this point um yeah. which is you know which i know a lot of people who who like, really like this film who've played i think there might be a third one there people our age or around our age who have played one or two games of dungeons and dragons um because I know a few people who've had played one or two games who really, really enjoyed the film and thought it was because re- they knew it. I think it's like that thing where you like you've played it, so you know, you know the stuff in it. True, yeah, it's familiar enough that you can feel. Oh yeah, I'm I'm in the club. I, yeah, I I I, I, I recognise something in there for me. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I don't begrudge any of those three audiences their enjoyment of the film. Mm. I'm not saying that you know someone's a bad person for liking the film. <laughs> I just. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's I, fair. It was, it was less of a kind of this is a bad thing, and I wish it had never been made, mm. and more of a like I, you know, I've I've seen and enjoyed my fair share of absolute trash pulp fantasy films. Talking about Dragonheart. Talking about well, I thought you know, what, I, I, wait, that's not Dragonheart slander, is it? You said you you like Dragonheart. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because Dragonheart's a perfect film. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's a great anyway. film. Cry every time. Um, uh, maybe we'll do an episode about it. <laughs> uh, the excuse to rewatch Dragonheart. Yes. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, it's not that I hate the fact that it exists. Um, because, yeah, like I said, pulp fantasy and trash, I can love. Mm-hmm. It's the, the yawning gulf the chasm between what they could have done with such a, a wide-reaching and open-ended medium as Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Um, because the whole, you know, one of the big things about 5th edition was to try and open up Dungeons and Dragons, not just to new audiences, but the ways that you could play it. Mm. And I feel like they kind of dropped that ball. I think maybe it's <clears throat> perhaps um, this is one of those um, it probably maybe opens up a wider discussion into that thing about Hollywood uh, and businesses, media production businesses playing things safe um, because as a, a new as a, as a film that had been in production hell since 20, 2013 uh, on a you know a new, a new and that had previous films that were, you know, people like them as like cult classics, but were objectively bad films. Um, creating a new entry in a in a world where now everything has to have a like a expanded universe, and you can bet that Hasbro are definitely want to make a lot more D and D movies. Oh yeah, there's definitely a, a cork board with a bunch of red string on it somewhere in Hasbro headquarters that yeah. has like a nine film 
arc oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you it. got yourself your streaming services you get your you get your your critical role film you get your everything else film you get your once you get people call me when on, you're doing planescape <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that yeah well planescape that would be, be mad that would be good that would be good be and crazy. then you know you've also got uh a bit that i think also an interesting thing to bring in here is um a little bit apples and oranges but um looking back in retrospect having well i've completed and you're a lot of the way through Baldur's gate 3 and having also played Baldur's gate 2 obviously it's unfair to compare a film to a game um but man the 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 attention to the the love of the setting and the world is 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 different and palpable between the two yeah and you know the the like ways that they've made the characters and the relationships you know even even if you were to play Baldur's Gate 3 in the most linear fashion you could um you know to to mitigate that difference between film and game mm. just the the ways that yeah the characters and the communities and the relationships between them are are made and represented are more imaginative and more playful and more more interesting so maybe and yeah i i absolutely loved Baldur's gate one and two um they were two of my favorite games of all time and they were set they were using the second edition of dungeons and dragons yeah so back when paladins had to be boring lawful good humans Mm. um i mean to be fair even Baldur's gate three struggles with paladins a little bit, yeah. The the ways that they manage the oaths can be a little bit, kind of, uh, you know, hit and miss. Yeah. Um, but at least you have a lot more kind of agency in in how you in how your your paladin you know mm-hmm. navigates the world. Yeah. I also I I think that you're gonna suffer. I mean, maybe I I can see them taking more risks, maybe with a second or a third. Um, Dungeons and Dragons movie. I mean, the thing is, because as we've said, the world is so massive, you can just leave that set of characters behind and, cre- and do a new film with a whole new set, a whole new bankable star. So you don't have to get Chris Pine. But like, oh yeah, on the subject of that, sure. <laughs> sorry, something that I forgot to write down in my notes. Um, on this isn't necessarily something I hated about the film, but I have never been moved by Chris Pine. <laughs> Um, he like I I don't know I don't know why he just has this kind of really blandsome vibe. Yeah, he's he's um, very he's very Hollywood Hollywood produced leading man, isn't he? Yeah, and I I I don't feel like I didn't feel like there was much to him. Mm. Um, in terms of like individuality, and I think that happened with a couple of the characters. I feel I felt like they could have characterize them more i guess but sorry that's me circling back no i mean i guess guess they're kind of flanderized in a way right and and yeah Mm -hmm. like the problem is again is when you are uh as deep into the rabbit hole as killian and i to to do use two different alice in wonderland um references in one podcast then you do see missed opportunity when when you when you're tackling a medium that naturally if you play it for over years you will come to uh, such a huge and deep understanding of the characters that you play not only the characters you play but the characters your friends play and the 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 non-player characters you'll meet that the dm creates trying to uh 
trying to put that together for one film is very it's a very difficult thing to achieve and i think yeah i think the film if we if we presented the guys who wrote the film and just like you know uh people who don't play D liked it people who play a little bit of D liked it people who played a lot of D, some of them liked it but some of them hated it they probably go ah we'll take that yeah i i fully get it and as someone who in my day job um has to think a lot about audiences and narrative and you know how to engage different audiences with uh you know with with different content i get that you know i wasn't the target audience it doesn't matter to to anyone else that yeah. i didn't like it but it matters to me well as as like a <laughs> as like a a final bonus round section of this podcast uh is because i didn't want to be finicky about it because it does seem a bit nitpicky but like what? What are <laughs> what are your top mechanical bugbears about the about the film? I didn't like the fact that the bard didn't cast a single fucking spell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although I I remember hearing uh, a case on um, Nadpod's D and D court. Um, Nadpod being a, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, Wonderful and show. they have a a spin off show uh, called D and D Court, where mm. listeners will submit their cases, disputes between players and DMs or mm. players, players and other players, um, for deliberation. And I remember there was a case of a yeah a bard who would only attack with a dagger. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, uh, Edgin, yeah. I, don't think he does cast a single spell. People say that Not he uses bardic. People say he uses bardic inspiration, but through the medium of speaking and like geeing people up. But as a full caster, like as somebody plays a bard uh, yeah, as well, I mean, it's just like it's just a little disappointing. I was like, okay, well, I can yeah. see why you're taking a more realistic tone with it. But I was thinking that maybe at the end he'd actually cast a spell, but. Yeah, and then there's the whole especially because um, everyone around him is casting spells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the wild magic sorcerer who surges once, I think. Um, yeah, I went. Mean, you know, it, it, that it, that is a fun little moment seeing his what kind of wild magic, you know, flare up and stuff. Um, if I'm getting my real pedantic hat on, um, yeah, there was the the kind of the the many many wild shapes, but again, that's that's a fun bit of story. To it's a decent sequence as well. Do a to be film fair. with yeah. Yeah, it, it it is a cool it's a cool thing to watch. Um, if I'm getting really really finicky, yeah. um, they managed to empty a stadium really. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like true. there is like a doomsday event happening above a stadium. Good old stadium. As soon as they realize it, uh, oh my god, we need to get out. Um, within seconds, the entire stadium is empty. Yeah, but again, like. This this section, I know we're getting stuff off our chests, but for me, all these little finicky things, I can forgive yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a bunch of little minor kind of rules, details, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was the the ambition that really failed this film. <laughs> yeah, you you really you've you've slammed the cover of this. Well, people don't have DVD, even even have DVDs anymore. But you slammed the cover of this DVD with a stamp that says "Do better." <laughs> Do better. Hire me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the case. That would that was, well, that that would be quite the uh, quite the turnaround. It will be all autistic baby robots, psychotic goblin policemen, uh, like posh boy werewolf gap year kids. Yeah. What do you want? 
We'll say save that for the <laughs> that'll be the the fiftieth episode special. Will be Lorax on our D and D worlds. Really, really <laughs> yes. psychoanalyze each other. <laughs> oh God, I have a feeling that it's going to be quite telling. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. Uh, well, stick around with us until episode fifty, listener. Yeah, do it. That's there's your tea, there's your little dangling uh, dangling carrot. So next episode, um, we are going to be we can tell them right. Yeah, we're going to be looking at. Dune, Frank Herbert's world of deserts, drugs, politics, and all sorts of madness. Yeah, and talking about how the what the film did, the latest film that is, did and didn't do right. Uh, it's going to be good, it's going to be big. Uh, I read Dune every year, and have done since I'm, I was like 14, so... I had to rewatch the film uh, for this episode because the first time I watched it in the cinema, I was so high I forgot most of it. <laughs> do you want to do your disclaimer? <laughs> Mum, if you're listening, that's a joke. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> you can't prove anything. <laughs> I know my mum won't listen because she fucking hates Dune. <laughs> oh, let's get her on the episode. <laughs> no. Our first yeah. ever guest. <laughs> that would be wild. Okay, that's it though. Next episode. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.